Everybody doing okay? So we've upgraded you to business class since the last time you've been in here. So I, it costs a lot of money if you're on an airplane. So you should be pretty happy about that. All that leg room. So um, one of the times I was flying uh, to Africa, we, we, we used to go through Europe a lot. And now they have a direct flight to Kenya from New York, which is a miserable plane ride. But anyways, uh, we used to fly through uh, Europe quite a bit. And every time I would do one of those international flights, I would always see the people in the front. You ever seen the, the seats where you can actually lay down? Like you can sleep, lay down, they got a little TV and you sleep. I don't, I mean, anyways. Um, so I would think, well, if that's only like four or $500 more, I'm, I'm gonna do that, I wanna sleep. And I checked into it one time and those tickets are like nine grand to do those like lay down things. And I was like, who can afford that? And well, obviously someone can, because I'm in coach, you know, sitting completely upright and I have three inches between me and the seat in front of me for, you know, 18 hours. And I envy and, and borderline think horrible thoughts about those people. So someone can afford it. It's just not me. Anyways, glad you guys are here. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew. We've been in it for this entire year. I'll be straight up with you. I'm ready to move past it. We have a little bit. Left, we have uh, two lessons in chapter 27, then chapter 28 is a very, very short chapter, very important chapter, um, but a very short chapter. So we're just a couple of weeks away, and we'll have this book knocked out. And um, where we're at, two weeks ago, we did Advent last week, but the week before that, Isaac taught, did a phenomenal job. Um, not only is he a good teacher, he looks like the Karate Kid, so that's kind of an added bonus. You know, you get to hear the word. Just kind of pretend that it's the Karate Kid teaching it to you. And so, uh, are you guys going to be this quiet the whole time? Is it going to be like this? Okay, good. Because I start getting angry when you guys are super quiet. And I just get real preachy and loud. And you guys don't like that. And I don't like that. And so, like, okay. We, I was saved in a Pentecostal church. So you're allowed to like amen or like, you can stand up and run around for all I care. I don't, but anyways. So, okay, good. Everyone's alive. Everyone's good. Okay. So where we are in the Gospel of Matthew is, is we are getting into maybe some of the heaviest, most dramatic, gut-wrenching parts of the entire Bible. We're getting into the crucifixion of Christ, okay? So where Isaac left off two weeks ago is Isaac, we kind of we get to see the, the beginning of just how dark the end of Jesus' life was, of course, before the resurrection. And the reason a couple of weeks ago we get to see how dark it, it, it is becoming is all of Jesus's friends desert him. He's arrested. He tells Peter before Peter splits as well. Jesus tells Peter, even you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, 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 I would never do that. And we see at the end of chapter 26 that, that Peter has in fact denied his savior three times. And so we see as Jesus is brought in front of the Jewish council he's very unfairly treated. He's unfairly tried. It's going, it's going really it looks like on the surface, very poorly. In chapter 27, we're gonna move into Jesus standing in front of the Roman government. So he's moved from the Jewish government to now he's gonna stand trial basically in front of the Roman Empire. And this is going to lead him to the cross. So here's what we're gonna talk about today. It's gonna to be a really, really weird kind of thesis. And here's kind of the thesis of today. And I'm gonna talk a lot about me at the end because I wanna be personally responsible. And I want to, I want to, so I don't want to put any weight on you. I want to, I want to absorb that today at the end. And you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. But here's what we're going to talk about today. 
The cross that Jesus was crucified on is both our fault and it's also our only hope. <laughs> so we are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. But Jesus knew the only hope we had of salvation was him going through what he went through. And that opens up the door for us to be saved, to be changed, and to have everlasting life with him, okay? We're gonna talk about that. Our fault, but it's also our only hope, okay? The cross. So if you have a physical copy of the scripture, we're in the first book of the New Testament. I'm gonna jump over to the book of John briefly today. I don't do that much, but I'm gonna kind of cross-reference a little bit today. We're in the 27th chapter. We're gonna do about half of it, a little less than half. You should have got a notes handout. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, um, the Experience Community app, it's Tim Cook's favorite app. If you download that, uh, has all of our information, has all of our information on the app as well. See, the joke was is Tim Cook doesn't know who I am. So he's, he, he's the one that owns Apple. Does everyone, everyone's familiar with Apple computers? Man, come on, guys. All right, let's pray. Thanks, Chuck. Let's pray. Let's get into this service. I swear, someone's gonna laugh or cry or show some kind of emotions before you walk out of this building today and um, we'll get there, all right? Lord Jesus, God, keep your hand on my sarcasm today, Lord. Temper it, hold it down. Father, Lord, we love you so much. God, I'm so grateful that everyone's in this room today. God, I'm so grateful, Lord, that we can worship in person. God, for everyone that's online, I'm glad, Lord, that we have the technology uh, to do that. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that it sharpens us today, that it, that it empowers us today, that it brings us closer to you. Father, we pray for all the churches in our city. God, because we are doing our best and it's a confusing and hard time, so please give us wisdom and grace, Lord, and let our churches give us wisdom and grace, God. Father, Lord, we just pray that everything we do today, that it honors you. I pray, God, that you just teach us something new today. Enlighten us today, God. Reveal something to us today, Lord. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna break it down. Okay, here we go. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, Judas said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and he departed and then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it is not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. They conferred together and bought the potter's field for a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites and they gave them the potter's field that the Lord had directed me. Okay, so what had happened a couple of weeks ago, we talked about in chapter 26. Jesus was brought in front of the Jewish council that handled both governmental law and religious. They were very blended together, okay? So if you don't know anything about this, when Jesus was brought, it was at nighttime. They didn't hold trial at night. 
Not only that, the witnesses at the trial were not properly vetted. Not only that, it was illegal to have a trial right before the Sabbath day. And so all these different things had happened that broke their laws, but they went for it anyways. Now they did this at night because the Jewish leaders knew that they had to take Jesus in front of the Roman leaders. So because they were lying, plotting, conniving, doing all kinds of unethical and evil things, they had to get their story straight, right? You guys remember when, when we were all liars as kids once upon a time and you're doing something, you gotta get your story straight before you go to the teacher or whatever the case may be. That's what they're doing. They're getting their story straight. Now Judas hears about this. If you don't know who Judas is, this is the one that sold Jesus out. And Judas uh, uh, hears that, that Jesus has been convicted by the Jewish people and he feels remorse for this. Now look at how Matthew talks about Judas and everyone that mentions Judas mentions him in a negative light and rightfully so, right? Calls him his betrayer. But here's the thing about Judas. We really start to see just how tragic this, this person is, right? Because we see what happens when sin and greed and envy and jealousy get a hold of someone and we see just how dark this goes that he started to feel remorse for what he did. He sinned against innocent blood. This doesn't mean that Judas necessarily believed that Jesus was the Savior, but he knew that Jesus was a good man. And at the very least, Judas felt bad because he had sold out an innocent man who was going to be violently beaten and who was going to be killed. And he wanted to right that wrong. So Judas goes to the people that paid him off, right? Which was, oddly enough, the religious leaders. Takes the money throws it into the temple and he says, I don't want any part of this. Let's undo this. Let's, 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 let's cut this deal. And they respond to him and they say, well, what is it to us, right? They wanted to distance themselves from Judas. They already got what they wanted out of him. They used him. They, they, they took advantage of him. And now they're going to discard him. And this is what happens, guys. Whenever we have a, a lack of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we tend to be self-preserving. We tend to be self-serving because without the Holy Spirit, what happens is, is we become individualistic consumers. Welcome to America. This is what we have become. Unfortunately, we've even become this within Christianity in the United States. Look at how people talk about churches. The fact that we can rate churches on a, on a star scale on Google is kind of disgusting in and of itself, right? We talk about churches not in terms of theology. Man, my church teaches good theology. Man, the Holy Spirit's working in my church. Man, we do a lot of community service. No, 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 we talk about it like we have a great building. You know, we, we, we talk about church like we talk about wine tasting. Well, it's not exactly my flavor. I would rather be in a new place and I'd rather have a guy that wears a nicer suit or I don't wear any suits, but anyways... And we talk about it like, like we're, it's just not my flavor because we've become consumers. We've become consumers of the product that has become the North American church. And it's all about me. It's my preference, right? It's what I want. And so this is not the heart of God. To act like that means that our relationship with God is either non-existent or not what it should be to be self-serving and self-preserving like that. That's none of you guys. Guys, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about other Christians somewhere else. Anyways, and so you guys are great. So anyways, and if you're watching online and you don't come here, you're, you're good too. Uh, anyways, so 
Judas sold out Jesus for what would have been a month's salary. Now, let's say, uh, for instance, just so we can put it in numbers, we can understand. Let's say uh, uh, $50,000 is, is about an average salary, maybe in, in this part of the country. So let's say it was four grand, five grand that Judas sold Jesus out to. Now, that's not a lot of money. Now, now I know four or $5,000 is, is a lot of money to some of us, but I'm saying in the grand scheme of selling out someone to die, Judas probably could have got more money. So I don't think it was really about money. What I think it was about was Judas wanted Jesus to be something Jesus was not. Jesus did not act the way Judas wanted Jesus to act. And we see that back throughout the Gospels. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are our expectations of Jesus? Are they biblical expectations? Remember when those bracelets were real popular, the what would Jesus do? Well, it's an easy question to answer. You just go to the Bible and he tells you what he would do in certain situations. But if we don't go to the Bible, we don't truly know what Jesus would do. And we try to make a, a savior in our image versus following the true Christ. Here's the other thing. When we read about Judas, we say, man, I can't believe Judas sold Jesus out for so little. Now, I'm gonna get personal today. When I read this, I think, how many times have I sold out Jesus Christ for a lot less than five grand? How many of us in this room have sold out our relationship with Jesus for one night of sex with that woman? How many of us in this room have sold out our relationship with Jesus for looking at 10 minutes of porn? How many of us in this room have sold out our relationship with Jesus to lie a little bit on our taxes or take that stuff from work or, or whatever the case may be? It's so easy to judge Judas. I've been Judas a million times over. And I bet some of you have too, if we're honest with ourselves. Isn't it crazy how little we will sell our Savior out for? But he did. And so after Judas threw the coins at the Pharisees, now I find this part unbelievably ironic, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, got the money and they said, well, it's not right that we keep this money in the temple. That breaks a law. They were the ones that gave the money to a guy to sell him out so they could have him murdered. And they're like, well, oh, we can't keep this, right? This is blood money. Yes, blood money that came from your treasury. So instead of keeping the money, they said, well, we'll buy a field and we'll use the field to bury foreigners that pass through this area and don't have a place to be buried if they die. Now, the reason this is important is two different Old Testament books written centuries and centuries and centuries before this one prophesied that this would happen. So this is why this is important to know. Jesus was in control the whole time. This, Jesus knew these things were going to happen, and the religious leaders who should have known these things were going to happen were blind to it, and they were unknowingly playing right into the hand of God. Jesus was in control the whole time. Fascinating. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, Jesus didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? Let me stop. That's the same as Pilate saying, don't you hear how bad they're talking about you? They're saying bad stuff about you. Don't you hear that? But Jesus didn't answer him even on one charge so that the governor was quite amazed. 
Now listen, there's some really, really big stuff in this part. And again, it's not applicable to a lot of you because I think a lot of you have, have good heads on your shoulders and good relationships with Jesus. And I don't mean that facetiously, but there's some really good stuff in this part. So the fact that Jesus Christ was convicted not only by the Jews, but by the Romans as well, showed that all people on planet Earth were responsible for the death of Jesus. See, the Bible only classifies people really in, in one of two categories, a Jew or a non-Jew, as far as nationality. And at this time, Rome would have symbolized all the world except for, for Israel. So many people have accused Matthew, the author of this book of the Bible, of being anti-Semitic, which means he doesn't like Jews. That's a weird accusation because he was a Jew. And so the, the fact that Matthew not only includes how the Jews persecuted Jesus, but also how the Romans did as well, shows us that it's every nationality, it's every color, it's every creed. Every single, every single human has fallen short. It's not just America that's bad or Russia or China or illegal immigrants from Mexico or Canadians or whatever the case may be. <laughs> Some Canadian in the back is like, how dare you? Anyways, <laughs> we are all responsible, right, for contributing to the evil of humanity which led Jesus to the cross. That's why this is important. And so listen, Pilate was the Roman governor, and he was the governor over the biggest part of Israel, the southern part of it, okay, the area called Judea. And if the Jewish leaders were to have Jesus executed, they had to go through the Roman governor. They had to go through him. Now, here's the thing about the Roman Empire, which looks remarkably like America today in a lot of ways, is they held very tightly to their laws. So they were a pluralistic society, which meant Rome let people worship however they wanted to, as long as it didn't supersede the government. That's how Rome worked. So you could worship however you wanted to, for the most part, as long as it didn't supersede Caesar, okay? So Pilate let them do their religious thing over there. And so because the Romans were very strict to their laws, when Pilate was interrogating Jesus, it was genuine. Pilate was genuinely trying to get to the truth, okay? Who is this guy? Has he done anything worthy of being punished, okay? So he asks him, and I believe Pilate is being sincere. He looks at Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? They, they hate you because you claim to be a savior. Or is that who you are? And so Jesus responded to the Roman government just like he responded to the Jewish government. He just said, you say so. Now, these are the last words that Matthew records Jesus saying. But here's something that's interesting. Here's where I'm going to cross over into another book of the Bible. There is more to this conversation that John gives us. And there are a couple of nuggets from this conversation that I think are very, very pertinent to you and I in 2020. The first thing that I think is very pertinent that is a part of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate is Jesus is asked by Pilate, where is your kingdom? Listen, I say this so much. I said it a lot in 2016. I said it a lot in 2012. I said it a lot in 2020. Whenever we have elections, Jesus responds when, when Pilate says, where is your kingdom? He says, it's not of this world. It's above this. What, what the kingdom of God is bigger. It is better. It is righteous. It is holy. Now, listen, when I say that, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-Republican. Doesn't mean that I'm anti-Democrat. Doesn't mean that I, doesn't, I, I don't vote. Doesn't mean that I don't pray for whoever gets elected. Doesn't mean that I don't respect the, the, the governing authorities because the Bible says that we are to do that. 
But listen, what this is a reminder of is your salvation will never be in an earthly government. Hey, look at that. There's some emotion. Good. Now, see, that upsets a lot of people. And I'll tell you, the number one reason why people leave this church is I will not teach that government will save you. A lot, people don't leave this church because of bad theology. They don't leave this church because of the weird decor or whatever. They leave this church because they want me to be a political leader. Jesus didn't come as a political leader, and nor will I. And so what Jesus said is, you have your governments, and the people in government who are in power because I allowed them to be in power, but my kingdom is something bigger than this. My kingdom is something greater than anything in this world. The other good nugget that we read in John chapter 18 is Pilate and Jesus are sitting there talking, and Jesus says to Pilate, this is very important, he says, if you hear me speak, you are hearing the truth. That's what Jesus says. Whatever comes out of my mouth, whatever my teachings are, Jesus says, that is the absolute truth. It's the foundation. Now, what we get from that is not only are the teachings of Jesus from the Gospels, the truth, the word of God, because every word of this is inspired by God, every word of this is the truth. Now, in response to Jesus saying, my voice is the truth, Pilate says, what is truth? Now, here's what's going on here. Now, hang with me for a second. Jesus is Jesus. He's the God of the universe. All things were created through him, for him, by him, right? He's been there before any of us ever existed. He is the truth. He does not move. He does not change. Jesus. Pilate represents modern society. Not just 2,000 years ago, Rome still symbolizes modern society today, progressivism, if you will. And so what you have is Jesus saying, the truth does not change. The truth does not move. And then you have the world or modern society saying, truth is relative to the individual. What is truth? It's like a Caucasian 41-year-old man standing up here saying, no, I am black. That is my truth. And you look at me and say, you're not. Look at your skin. And I say, my truth is that I am black. It's crazy, isn't it? It's ludicrous. Yet we live in a society right now to where we allow each individual to have their own customized truth. And Jesus says, that's just not the way it works. But Pilate says, what is truth? So let's put the rubber where the road meets, right? So we say that and we go, yeah, that's right, Corey. You tell those people who are transgendered or gay or whatever, you, you get them. 95% of all people who follow Jesus Christ lose their virginity before they're married. 95%. Everyone's awake? So what we have is a whole generation of people that claim to follow Christ, but when it comes to what this book says, they say, well, but I love him but we're married in God's eyes. That's bull crap. And it's not what this book says. So what we have is we're really good at pointing the fingers at other people's sins. But what we have done is willingly neglected simple teachings of this word and we say, my truth is different than this. That's what a lot of us have done. I've done it too. I'm gonna own everything today. I have done it too, okay? Now, here comes a very, very important slide. That's why there's orange up there. 
at all the false accusations, <laughs> at all the things that are being said about Jesus, it is so bad to where even Pilate, the Roman, says, do you hear them? They are talking trash about you. They're posting nasty things on Facebook about you, Jesus. They're doing awful things, right? Their TikTok is just full of videos making fun of you, Jesus. Do you see this? <laughs> and here's what happened. In the face of being falsely accused, in the face of his identity being questioned and his mission being questioned, how did Jesus respond he didn't. Let me tell you a personal story. When I left the church that my wife and I got saved at, we left in 2008, and the only reason I left that church was to start this one. I knew God called me to start this church. I went and talked to my pastor. I said, I'm not going to take anyone from your church. Kyle came later. We went to church together, but he came much later. And when we left that church about a month after we left, they said everything bad about us that you can possibly imagine. They said a bunch of things that were blatant lies. It got so bad to where I contacted a lawyer because my name was getting drugged so much through the mud. I said, can I get them to shut up? Because they're telling lies. They're posting stuff. They're having meetings, all these things. And I had a lawyer look at me and say, you could sue them. And that would get them to shut up. You, you, could, get, you could get money from them. And I remember I was sitting at the Starbucks. It's closed down, but there used to be one by the mall right next to Buffalo Wild Wings. And I was sitting at the Starbucks, and I was preparing to start this church, and I was going to teach the book of Matthew. And I got to the 27th chapter of Matthew. And I was angry, and I was mad because a lot of people were saying things about me that weren't true. And I read that Jesus kept his mouth shut. And I said, God, I'm not going to do a thing about it. I'm just going to start the church you told me to start. And I've never spoken ill about them since. And I'm, I'm not trying to do that now. Here's the thing. Listen to me carefully. Because this year, a lot of Christians, I've heard too many Christians say we have to fight back. No one's going to take this from me. No one's going to alter what I want to do. These are my rights. These are my freedoms. We're going to fight. We're going to yell. We're going to scream. We're going to march. If we're confident in our identity and mission as a Christian, we need not scream and fight when someone challenges who we are. Amen. Thank you. Listen, because Jesus didn't strike back when someone hit him. He said, turn the cheek. Jesus said, if they steal your shirt, give them your shoes. Corey, that's crazy. No, it is Christ. It is Christ. And it is completely counterintuitive to how the world tells you to respond. But Jesus says, be in passive humility. Be in humility. Let God do his work. Let God be the one that deals with evil and everything else. Put it in his hands. Okay, I'll move on. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it that you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus who is called Christ. For he knew it was because of envy that they handed Jesus over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of these two do you want me to release? 
Barabbas, the crowd answered. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then Pilate said, why? What has he done wrong? But they all kept shouting, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that a riot was about to start instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. So what's happening is the trial moves from a private conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Now it's out in the open. Large group of people. And so to try and get out of condemning a man that he believed to be innocent, what, what Barabbas is going to do, or what uh, Pilate is going to do is he's going to bring up Barabbas and he's going to do something that the local religion always did. So here's the thing about the Roman government. They would allow, when they would conquer an area, they would allow things to kind of still work the way they worked before they conquered it, even religion, as long as they were kind of on top. So they were a pluralistic culture, just like we are, right? They respect all religions, right? As long as it doesn't supersede the government. And so what Pilate was going to do was he was going to use their religion to try to get Jesus out of this. So he brings up a notorious prisoner. This is Pilate's escape. This is his way to get out. How do I get out of this? Let's bring the most violent, crazy, crazy uh, prisoner that we have up here. And certainly they're not going to, to, to choose Jesus to, to be killed when, when this guy could be on, out on the streets. And so the mistake that Pilate made was he underestimated just how insane hatred can make people. He underestimated just how much envy and jealousy and covetousness. That's why it's a Ten Commandment. That's why Jesus tells us to address envy and jealousy, because it can lead us to hysteria. It can lead us to be so insane that we would rather the whole ship sink than let someone else steer us to shore. Think, think about that one for a second. Anyways, to add to the complexity of this, so you have Pilate who thinks Jesus is innocent. He brings out Barabbas and they still want Barabbas to go free. To add to the complexity of this, Pilate gets word from his wife that she has had a vision, a dream about the fact that Jesus is a good man, a righteous man. This is insane to me. So God is speaking to Pilate's wife in a dream. Now, I'm not trying to get Pilate off the hook. We'll, we'll talk about him here in a second. But imagine how stressed this guy was. He's trying to be a politician and placate to the people he's over. He's, he knows that this is an innocent man. And now his wife is even saying it's an innocent man. And so he looks at them. And look at this. In contrast to Pilate and his wife, pagan Romans, in contrast to people who have no idea who the Jewish God is, the religious people wanted to murder and the non-religious people were trying to get an innocent man off the hook. You ever witness people who are not Christians act more like Christ than people that profess to be Christians? You've probably seen it way too much. And this is what you see in this case. The people who claimed to know God were calling for murder. And the people who didn't, who didn't believe in that God were trying to show grace. Interesting. 
So they bring up Jesus and actually another Jesus. So in Mark 15, 7, they describe Barabbas as a murderous terrorist, okay? Now, a lot of historians and a lot of early church leaders believed Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. Not only was his name Jesus Barabbas, Jesus was actually a pretty common name. They believed he was the son of a celebrity philosopher and teacher. So here's what Pilate presented society. <laughs> Listen to this. Do you choose the son of a celebrity or do you choose the son of God? And society chose the son of a celebrity. We still do it now, don't we? This generation gets more of their theology from famous athletes and movie stars and YouTube influencers than we do from the book of, from the word of God, right? From the book that was inspired by God. We seek after the affirmation of celebrities and we dress like them and look like them and try to think like them and do everything like them, right? Choosing celebrity status over the son of God. We've been doing it for a long time. And so the anger and the hatred towards Jesus from the religious leaders, it escalates and they say crucify and Pilate's like, wait a second, crucify him? What has he done? He hasn't done anything worthy of death. But Pilate realizes that he, not only is he not getting anywhere, there's a riot that's about to break out. And a riot was breaking out with the religious people in a week that should have been holy. They should have been celebrating. They should have been eating with their families. They should have been worshiping God. But now they just want this man to die. And even Pilate was like, this has gone crazy. So Pilate brings out a basin of water. Pilate's very famous for this puts his hands in the water and kind of symbolically cleans his hands. And he says, listen, this is evil. This is unjust. This isn't right, but I'm going to, I'm going to turn away from it. My hands are clean of this situation. Here's what Pilate was really doing. <laughs> Pilate was saying, Jesus is good. He's righteous. He should be free. But to get too involved in Jesus's life would cost me my comfort. To get too involved with Jesus would cost me my livelihood. It would cost me my status. It may even cost me my life. I don't want to get that involved with Jesus. You know what this tells us? Listen, I believe that, and I'm not trying to be, you guys are like, man, it was Christmas last week. Why is he being so heavy this week? I believe the church in North America is going to be held accountable for its passivity. When we have churches building buildings that are tens of millions of dollars, when we have pastors making millions of dollars, when we have all the ornate things inside of churches, when we see how money is spent in the Christian community and there are children in this county who are starving, you don't think God's going to hold some people into account? You don't think God's going to hold our feet to the fire? When Jesus directly said, clothe the naked, feed the poor, visit the prisoner. And when the church, I got to be careful. No, I mean, we've just got to be careful because this passivity that we have so much prosperity in this nation, we have so much prosperity amongst Christians and there are people all around the world suffering and going hungry and getting sick and things that, that I, I just got to move on. We must not only address evil. Listen, 
It is not enough to say that's wrong. Christians are called to be the light and the salt. It is not enough to say there is evil over there. Christianity is called to address the evil. We're called to pray about it. We're called to give. We're called to serve. We're called to show love. We're called to show grace, right? Listen, my last thing on this slide, I'm gonna move on because I'm gonna get myself in trouble. James even said this. If you step over someone that's hungry and say, God bless you, you have not fulfilled the mission of Christ. You have not fulfilled the mission of Christ. It's in the book of James. You can look it up. To step over someone who's in need and just say, God bless you. Jesus loves you, right? Watch me on TV. Jesus loves you. All right, stop, Corey. So this part is bone chilling. As Pilate, the Roman governor, says, I don't want his blood on my hands. Look at what the religious leaders say. We'll take it. His blood will be on us. His blood will be on our children. How arrogant, how evil, how rebellious. And so blood was shed. If you don't know much about flogging, they would hit you with sticks as you were chained to a post, but they would often use what was called the cat of nine tails, if you've never heard of that. Had pieces of bone and and pieces of, of metal and glass in it, and they would whip a back, right? And it would stick, and they would rip parts of flesh off your back, and it would expose your back. And if the shock didn't get you or the blood loss didn't get you, you'd be completely mangled for life. And that's how they just started with Jesus. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on Jesus. They took the staff and they kept hitting him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. So to this point, it had been mostly the Jewish people who had been beating Jesus up, making fun of him, things like that. Now it is the Romans. So it says the main brunt of the physical suffering that Jesus went through was in the middle of a company of men in the governor's court. That would have been a room about this size, and a company of men was about 600 men. So Jesus was brought in the middle of 600 people, right? There's probably not 600 people in this room right now. 600 soldiers, and they all just took turns beating him, making fun of him. They stripped him of his clothes, and they put on a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns that was digging into his head. If you've ever been cut on your head, how much blood runs down when you get a gash on your head. They shoved this crown of thorns on his head. They make him kind of look like a, like a king, and they make fun of him, and they say, oh, hail, king of the Jews. They put a staff in his hands, and they start hitting him on the head with it. And one of the most disturbing parts about this chapter to me is they spat on Jesus. They spit on him. Now, listen, use your imagination here for a second. The creator of the entire universe, the creator of all of us, sat there as he was being spat upon, and he restrained his power. Corey, we're supposed to fight. He sat there and he restrained his power. I should have used a chapter from, I think it's Revelation 19 or 20. I may be off a chapter there. But in Revelation 19 or 20, I can't remember which one it is. Jesus comes back, all of the evil armies of the world, millions and millions of people who are there to fight against Jesus. And it says in the book of Revelation, all Jesus does is open his mouth and he obliterates all the evil armies of the world. Here he is being spat upon. He could have snapped his fingers right? 
The book of Revelation says that Jesus is going to speak the entire universe. He's going to make the whole universe unravel. And then he's going to create a completely new heaven and earth, right? He has that power. And in this moment, he restrained that power because he had a mission. And so Matthew writes, after they mocked him, after they stripped him of his robe, they put his clothes, probably the clothes he was arrested in, back on him. And they led him away to be crucified. If you're reading this for the first time, you have to ask yourself, how did it get to this point? Earlier on in Matthew, man, just last week at Advent, we were celebrating the birth of this baby boy right in a manger. This cute, cuddly story, right? God comes to earth in this humble way. We get this idea of the nativity set. That boy grows up, becomes a young man who heals people and raises the dead and feeds the poor and steps in when they're trying to persecute a woman who is, who is caught in adultery. And he steps in and he says, which one of you is innocent? Cast the first stone. This is the Jesus. And now they're leading him away to be crucified. Why? The reason why doesn't unfold just in Jesus's life on earth. It was the sins of all of humanity from the past, from the present, and the sins to come. That is what led Jesus to that cross. And you know who's responsible? I am. My sins led him to the cross. The evil that I had done contributed that. It even says, Paul writes, that while we were sinners, Jesus died. Jesus knew of the things I have done and would do on that cross. I'm a part of why he had to be hung on that cross. What we do, though, is when we read the Bible, it's so easy to point fingers at everyone else. Judas sold out Jesus, and all I think is, how, much, how, much, how many times have I sold Jesus out? And for far less. We look at Caiaphas, who should have known better. How many times have you and I known better and we still did evil? We look at Pilate, and we say, man, he's, he skirted his responsibility for comfort and ease. How many times have we done that? We point our finger at the Jews. We point our finger at the Romans. But all of us have fallen short. All of us are responsible. All of us. And even today, it is so easy for us to villainize others today, right? Well, the reason society's fallen apart is this group of people. Well, the reason there's so much violence is there's this group of people. Well, the reason the world economy is messed up is that nation. It's these illegals down there. It's these people over there. It's people of a different color than me. It is so easy to point the finger at everyone else, forgetting that we also have stake. We also have stock, if you will, in the rebellion against Christ. And then we do it at the world, right? Here's the thing, though. Non-believers that we blame so much for ruining the world, they are not the ones called by God to be the light. We are. So if your city sucks, it's about time to look into a mirror and say, I need to do something. When there's poverty in your neighborhood, when there are kids that are going hungry at our nine o'clock service, Joel Bigelow, he sits right over here. He does endure athletics. That is a group of 30 something kids, children, elementary age children who have no homes. That's in your city. Now, I, listen, our church is so benevolent. You guys are so gracious. But I'm talking about Christianity as a whole. How dare we spend the money we spend on stupid crap when there are kids that have no place to sleep? 
How dare we? But what we do is we say, that e we say the world is so evil, forgetting that we are called. We are the ones called by Christ to infiltrate the darkness and do something about it. If you don't like the way your city looks, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? We have to say it. When I look at how broken things are, I have to say, I had a hand in that. I had a hand in that. I've been saying it all year, but I just want to say it a couple more times because I think it's vitally important. This book was not written so we can look at how evil everyone else is. This book was written to address the evil within ourselves. Jesus even said it. Don't go around picking splinters out of everyone else's eye when you have a plank of wood in your own. Matthew chapter 7. That this book was written, not so I can compare myself to you. That's called self-righteousness. This book was written to address the darkness within my own heart. That's why I have this book. To address the evil within us, me. And here's the thing, I can't get so offended. When I get into this book, right? Because Jesus wants a personal relationship with us, we cannot get so mad when Jesus gets personal. When Jesus tells us that we have to address our greed, that we have to stop sleeping with our girlfriend before we're married, that we have to stop looking at those things on the internet. When we have a personal relationship with Christ, Christ gets into every corner of our life. How we spend our money, what we're listening to, where we're spending our time. And now, listen, it, it hurts when Jesus starts extracting those things from you. It hurts. It even says, Paul writes in the book of Romans, that when we give our lives to Jesus and we're baptized, we're crucified. It's a painful thing sometimes to have all that stuff extracted out of us. But it is only by allowing Jesus to get into our lives and dig in. It's the only way we can be saved, is to have that personal relationship with Christ. So the cross that I am responsible for, me, Corey Trimble, the cross that I am responsible for, ironically, is my only hope. Though it was my sins that led to that bloodshed, it is only by that blood that my sins can be forgiven. Isn't that crazy? That the very thing that I caused by Jesus having to die for my sins is the only thing that can make me clean. It's the only thing that can alleviate me of the darkness in my heart. It's the cross. Listen, not only is it by the blood that was shed on the cross that we are forgiven. This is so important. It is by the blood that was shed on the cross that you can change. This is where I struggle with a lot of Christians. A lot of people come to church, they get baptized, they get involved, but they keep on sinning the way they did before they had their encounter with Jesus. Now, here's my argument with that. You cannot have a genuine encounter with Christ and leave the same. Jesus Christ's blood changes us. Again, you go back to the scripture, into Colossians, into Romans chapter 6. Paul says the old self has been crucified, so we walk in a new way of life. That when we have an encounter with the cross, we are changed, we are delivered. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we are no longer slaves to our former selves. 
That means that a porn addiction is not what God has for you as a Christian. Depression and hopelessness are not God's desire for the Christian. That anger and hatred and racism and bigotry and sexism are not to be for the Christian. That we can be changed. We may have been that before, but post our conversion, God has changed us. The old self is dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. You should read that sometime. All these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. And he says, and such were some of you, but we have been washed. We have been cleaned. We have been changed. We have been delivered. An encounter with Jesus Christ will change you. It will change. And if it hasn't changed you, you haven't had an encounter with Christ. Now listen, here's where we're going to get really, really deeply personal again. It is because of the cross and through the cross and through the blood that was shed on the cross that we can be reconciled to God. I'm going to be real, real straight up with you guys today. I'm going to get real personal with you, okay? I don't know if anyone in this room can relate to this. My father disowned me when I was 17 years old, legally. I was emancipated. I moved in with my mother. She moved down from Chicago, bought a house in Lebanon, and I moved in with her because I was emancipated from my father. 13 of my 41 years, 14 years of my, of my 41 years, my father has had nothing to do with me, okay? Now, let me tell you what I used to do. When I became a Christian, it took me a lot of years because I would have a hard time loving God properly because I thought my heavenly father was gonna be like my earthly father. You guys with me, anyone? So when I would do something wrong, I thought my heavenly father would look at me the way my earthly father did. I thought that he'd abandon me. I thought that he'd leave me. But it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that he and I can have the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have. That I can love him, right? That I can talk to him the way I should. Have a relationship with God the way I should. And because of the blood of the cross and the Holy Spirit, we can also love people. Been tough this year to love people, hasn't it? Let's just be honest. It's been tough to love Christians this year. It's been tough to even love people that are like me this year, let alone people that are not like me. Do you know the Bible says we're to love both? You know the Bible says that even non-believers love people that are like them. The trick is loving people that are not like you. That's the trick. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we love people properly and even love our enemies. Even love those that hate us. We are called to do that. Now, here's the last thing. And again, this is deeply personal. I go to a counselor. I go once a month. I remember I had a woman leave our church because I admitted that I see a counselor. <laughs> I go see a counselor once a month. And sometimes it's, it's just easy and I just kind of do a check-in. And sometimes I've got a bunch of crap that we need to talk about. So I drive out to Franklin. I meet my counselor. He's a wonderful man. I've been seeing him for two years. And two months ago, I went and saw him. And kind of out of nowhere, he asked me a really intriguing question. And at first, it didn't really hit. But on my drive home, it hit me. He said, Corey, do you like what you see in the mirror? At first, I'm like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like all this gray hair coming in here. And I kind of joked and, and wrote it off. And then on my ride home, 
He asked me that because I am a person that struggles with affirmation and I struggle with value. I'm an achievement person. I don't know if anyone else in this room is an achievement person. I don't care about beating you. I'm not, I'm not competing with you. I'm competing with me. I got a black belt three years ago, not because I give a rip about martial arts, but because I was told only a certain handful of people ever have gone from white to black in a year. So I did it. Put it on my shelf, right? Not for any of you. A lot of you may never come into my office. I do it for me. I look because I can see that and say, I'm valuable. Look, I did something. Wrote a couple of books. Look, it's over there on the shelf. I wrote that. I'm valuable. I've made a mark. I've done something. So I thought about that question. Do you like what you see? And because of my broken relationship with my father, because he never saw me play sports or saw me play a musical instrument or wasn't at my graduation, because of these things, right? I didn't think I was valuable. Now here's where we're gonna get, just, just we're gonna talk real for a second. Because of the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us, we can love God, we can love people, we can love people not like us, we can love enemies, we can even start to love ourselves. And I don't mean this in this self-love crap that everyone's trying to push you in these self-help books. It's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you can look in the mirror and you can start to understand a little bit how God sees you, that it's not by your achievements or your works or your looks or your money or how many people know you or how many thumbs up you get. It is because you are made in the image of the creator. You are valuable. Oh, hold on. And it is, it is only by the cross because we remember, not only did Jesus come, not only did he live and present the example, Jesus took nails in his hands and his feet, knowing every evil thing we would ever do because Jesus knew we were worth dying for. The only thing made in his image. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that you can understand what you're worth, that you can understand your value, that you can walk with your back straight and your head held high, not in arrogance, but in confidence and in security that the creator of the universe, even if everything falls apart, even if everyone is saying every bad thing, even if false accusations fly, even if you're unfriended and unliked and, and whatever the case may be, that we can still walk tall because the king of the universe sees us and says, I love you. You are valuable. You're valuable. Not because what you have done, but because of what I've done for you. You are valuable. Would you bow your heads with me? If there is anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with Christ, if you have any questions, we're not going to bait and switch you or trick you or make you recite anything, we're not, no, nothing like that. If you have any questions, if you come up here to my right, Pastor Greg is up here. He'd love to talk with you. If you need prayer for anything in this room, there are men and women on both sides of the stage. They'd love to pray with you. And then the last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. That should be a little extra special this morning. That communion represents the body that we, we read about today that was broken and spat upon and beat up. 
and that juice represents the blood that would be shed on the cross that we'll read about next week. And that blood gives us that relationship with God, that love for others, and it even lets us feel valuable. It even lets us know that we are of worth. We are loved by God. Even if no one else in this world gives us affirmation, our Heavenly Father gives us affirmation. He loves us. We can all take that. We can remember that. We can celebrate that. You just have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I want to pray for you. God, everyone in this room, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who maybe has family scars, anyone in this room who, who feels lonely or not, not valuable, Father, I pray with all sincerity that you would, you would wrap your arms around them. Lord, that you would comfort them, that you would give them peace, that, they would let, that, that you would let them know, God, that they are of worth, that they are of value, that even when you knew all the horrible things they've done and will do, you still died on the cross for them. Lord, I love you. Protect my friends. Keep your hand on their families, God. Lord, keep us safe until we meet each other again next week. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.